in the Gospel of Matthew, as you know. We've been working our way through it for some number of months here on Sunday mornings, and so we're back joyfully at that place again, the 13th chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 24. If you'll turn there in your copy of the Word of God or your mobile device, however you obtain the Word of God, look there here, Matthew 13, verse 24, for our instruction this morning. Uh, that we might understand the will of God and the Word of God and for our blessing and spiritual life uh, strengthened. Let us join together in prayer. God our Father has spoken. So we have this record, this transcript of your truth. Teach us this morning. Meet our spiritual need as only you can. And we bless you for the privilege being able to open the word of truth, which is forever settled in heaven, that we might be edified, where our minds may be renewed, and our walk may more closely approximate that of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his glorious and wonderful name. Amen. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. I'm using as a subject uh, title, I guess, for these verses, something you probably not ever thought of, wheat and weeds. That was a joke. <laughs> Obviously not a good one. <laughs> wheat and weeds. God's plan of salvation of sinners is steadily being accomplished in our world, even as I speak. However, there is continuing opposition to God's plan from Satan. That opposition is highlighted in the parable from which we will study this morning. Interestingly, unique to this parable is that the conflict portrayed in it is personal. It is between Jesus and Satan. During our Lord's ministry on earth, unbelieving Jews in Israel were under the influence of Satan and in danger of the final judgment. This reality is true today. It's true today for all who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Satan is opposing the gospel. Satan does not want God's word to go forward. But God's word will go forward, is going forward, and will accomplish its intended end. The kingdom will triumph. 
This parable reveals that the outcome of the conflict between our Lord and the devil has already been decided. Jesus is the victor. He will come at the appointed time by the Father and he will judge the entire world. So Christians can rest assured that we're on the winning team. We know where we're going to end up at the, shall I say, end of the season. We will be ranked number one. There will be no one else. We will be the champions because our king is victorious. He is triumphant. It's a reality. In verse 36 of this parable, we see Jesus makes a statement. It's called here the parable, or the disciples called the parable of the tares, tares of the field. And again, it describes the present operation of God's kingdom program, his present saving rule in the world, and the enemy's effort to subvert that rule, his efforts to thwart that rule, his efforts to overthrow the will of God. This parable I just read in your hearing is indeed that a parable. It um, lays out for us what the kingdom is doing or what is taking place in the kingdom. And I'm giving a heading of it, the public pronouncement of the parable. Verses 24 through 30, we begin. And this, let me give you a reminder of what a parable is. A parable is a simple word picture with a profound spiritual lesson. Another way to define a parable is that it takes commonplace things or events from everyday life to convey spiritual realities. Here in the verses I just read in your hearing just a moment ago, Jesus uses an agricultural analogy in the parable of the tares to explain how the kingdom of heaven works. The words you notice in the text where it says in verse 24, uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Let's take those words may be compared to. Uh, they may be stated this way. This is what it is like when God is at work. This is what it is like when God is work. What is it like? A man who sowed good seed in his field. The Lord is at work sowing good seed. But I get ahead of myself. Let me go further here as we look at this verse, verse 25. He's done that, but while his men, the men who works for the landowner, the men who serve him, the slaves, as this parable tells us, they were sleeping. There's no neglect there, no negligence there. It is nighttime. The landowner's enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Obviously, he did this at night. This was a personal attack on the man who did He sowed tares among the Greek text indicates he sowed thoroughly. He heavily or thoroughly sowed the field and thereby made selective weeding impossible. What are tares? What is this plant. Tares render, renders the Greek zizania. Zizania is a weed which grows exclusively in the Middle East. It's botanically related, it is botanically related to wheat, but a poisonous fungus grows with 
in its grain. These plants, wheat and tares, are all but indistinguishable until the wheat is ready for the harvest. That's why it says in verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Then there is ability to distinguish between the two. Prior to that, there is no ability to do so, for they resemble one another. Wheat and weeds. Why would the man sow weeds that has fungus in his grain in a man's field? Well, number one, we've already read it. The man was his enemy. He did this to intend catastrophic uh, loss to the man in terms of his livelihood. He probably did it out of malice or revenge. He wanted to hurt this man. He wanted to cripple him economically. He was obviously angry with the man. And he slips in at night and he sows these tares in his field to harm him. In fact, this was a crime in the Roman Empire. Anyone who did this was subject to criminal punishment. Well, it became evident after verse 26 that there had been something other than good seeds sown in this field. You'll notice it says in verse 27, the slaves of the landowner owner, came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? This is the dialogue of discovery. Tares in your field. What shall we do? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now, notice something in verse 29. The word no is emphatic. It points to the danger of uprooting before the harvest. In fact, this word here rendered in this verse, uprooting, is used elsewhere in contexts that speak of a person's destruction by the judgment of God. I would like for you to look at Matthew chapter 15 and you'll see it here in verse 13. There was, Jesus was teaching. You, did you not know that when Jesus taught, people were offended by what he said? Because his words came to the heart and he uncovered people's sinfulness and they were offended by his words. And the disciples reminded our Lord of this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 12. Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement, the statements were previously stated? Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I hate I offended them. I'm sorry that, that, that offended. I'll have to fix my words to say them in a way that won't be offensive to the Pharisees. Do you think Jesus said that? Not on your life. Not on your life. Verse 13, but he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. That is talking about the destruction that's going to come at judgment. Those that God has, has not planted, those whom he has not sown, the good seed, will be uprooted. In Jude 12, the same language is used speaking of false teachers they seem to be getting away but their day is coming when they too will be uprooted they too will experience judgment but in the meantime 
we don't do anything to them. You notice back in Matthew chapter 13, the landowner said, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. The reapers are more experienced than the slaves. And they will have the capability of doing this. That, that's the parable. Now, I, I'm grateful that Jesus uh, has explained this to us. We don't have to guess at what the meaning is. We've heard the public pronouncement of the parable. Now let's listen to the private interpretation of the parable. If you will turn the same chapter to verse 36. The crowds... They did not get to hear what we're about to learn. You notice verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. A couple of things you need to understand. In the house in private, Jesus would explain the parable he said why he would do that in verse chapter 13 verse 11 to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them has it has not been granted the mysteries are the revelation of the kingdom of heaven is for believers for unbelievers it was concealed because they had rejected the gospel of Christ in Jesus' ministry, because they said, no, we don't want to hear it, Jesus decided then to conceal the truth from them. And so he gives it to his men. I'll tell you something that I think is fascinating here. His disciples were privy to this. One of the disciples who got to hear this explanation, it seems... It's inescapable, was none other than Judas Iscariot. What does the parable mean? Let's begin to look here and identify the elements of the parable. Verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ. In his humility and humanity and in the incarnation. There's also a title for his uh, for him as Messiah. He was the perfect man. He was the sinless man. Jesus is the one who inaugurated the kingdom. He is the one through his preaching and teaching brought the kingdom into being. Then we look further here as he continues to identify. And the field is the world. The field is not the church. The picture is of the church in the world, not the world in the church. It is the kingdom in the world, not the world in the kingdom. Admittedly, sinners will come into the church. Tares will come into the church. Weeds will come into the church. But that is not the point of Jesus' parable. The world refers to the world of unredeemed men under the power and influence of Satan. That's the world. That's the world we live in. Next, in verse 38... It says, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Kingdom is the sphere of salvation. 
I want to make a note here for you. The change of the use of seed from the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, the seed refers to the word of the kingdom, uh, Matthew 13, verse 19. Here, people who possess salvation, they are the seed. The word of the kingdom, the gospel was sown or planted in the good soil, uh, the heart of the, those who were prepared by God and they believed and produced spiritual fruit. These are the sons of the kingdom. Who else? Verse 38. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. Well, before we do that, let me explain further how a person becomes a son of the kingdom. Keep your place here and I'll show you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Show you a couple of places. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Here is how it works. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter writes to his readers that the reason you are born again, you have the new birth, you have eternal life, is because you've been born again through the ministration of the word of God by the Holy Spirit in your life. A second text I'd like for you to see, it's in the book of James, in the book of James, just briefly, James 1 verse 18 it says this, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Zero in on the word of truth. That's the gospel. And let me apply that. That's why we teach and preach the word of God. Because God uses his word to save people. He uses his word to bring people into his kingdom. He uses his word to transform sinners into saints. God's word does that. So we're committed to teaching the word of God. We're not committed at all to entertaining people, trying to make people feel good, but we are interested in helping them understand and grasp divine truth by preaching the truth. If you're a Christian this morning, you are a Christian because God used the word of God in your life to transform you, right? That's what he does. In the lives of people. Back in Matthew chapter 13, if you'll go back there with me again, and you see it. So we're the good seed. If you're a Christian this morning, you're the good seed. You can call yourself that, the good seed. Because Christ has planted you. Then, as we mentioned a moment ago, these are the sons of the kingdom. Then there, there are the tares, the weeds are the sons of the evil one sons of the evil one they are the unsaved ones they are the sons of evil the evil one by virtue of their sinful nature and unbelief they refuse the gospel and we used to be that way if you're a christian this morning remember you used to be one of them Amen. wow can you imagine that but you were i was 
and didn't know I was until I became a child of God and learned the word of God. I used to be like you used to be if you're now a Christian this way. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Clearly who unbelievers are. Sons of disobedience. They are tares. They are weeds. They follow Satan. That is the characteristic of them and where it was for us. Now, what are we supposed to do with these people? We live among them, right? They're here among us and we're among them. Let me suggest to you that we're to share the gospel with them just as someone shared the gospel with you. Now, verse 39 the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Yes, he is the relentless enemy of God and Christ. He and his fellow fallen angels oppose all that God is doing redemptively in the world. But one day, all of this is going to consummate. One day it's going to be over. Verse 39, the B portion, and the harvest is the end of the age. The judgment is going to come, and the reapers will be the ones who will execute the judgment at the end of the age. This present age, after the church is taken out of the world, there will be a tribulation period, an unprecedented period in human history called Daniel's 70th week. It's a seven-year period that will be concluded with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been gone 2,000 years, right? And some of you probably wonder, well, why doesn't he just get on back here? Because the world is in terrible condition. And people keep thinking, as they look at the world condition, they say, well, you know, it must be right away because look how the world is going. Well, the world is going uh, badly, sure. But why doesn't Jesus come? Why is it taking so long for him to come? Wouldn't you like to know the answer to that? I'll tell you. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. And you hear the word of God. Now, I'm going to explain something. You perhaps have heard this verse taught in a way that suggests um, something other than what the verse is really teaching. And I hope to make it clearer as we look at it briefly here. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Tell me if you found that place by saying, I found it. Oh, good. good. All right. Yes. Uh, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Talk about the second coming, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, let me explain something. Jesus, uh, Peter here, when he says he's patient toward you, these people to whom he wrote were already believers. They were already in the family of God. They are already kingdom citizens. Patient toward you, that refers to the elect, the one God has chosen. 
The reason Jesus is long and coming is he's working out his plan to bring all of his elect into the family of God. And when he says this further, not wishing for any to perish, to any does not refer to every single human being. It's not as if Jesus is waiting for, to give every single human being on the planet opportunity to come to faith. No, that's not it at all. The any there, again, refer to the elect. Those whom God has chosen for salvation. And Jesus is patient. He is patient in his coming because he's waiting till they hear the gospel and they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's waiting for all of them to come to repentance. To further distinguish the reality that this is talking about the elect and not talking about all men indiscriminately, all men without distinction, it's quite clear that what is reserved for some men is judgment. Run back up the page. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The world one day will be utterly destroyed and all the ungodly will be in it and be destroyed along with it. Why is Jesus taking a long time? He is working out his salvation plan. He's bringing the elect to himself. But he is going to come. And when he does come, he will then, then consummate and separate. Go back with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, the end of the age, the Son of Man, verse 41. You can see it there will send forth his angels when he comes. Matthew chapter 24, he will come and they will gather out. The angels will, his kingdom, all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. These are the weeds. These are the tares. They are the sons of the evil one. Stumbling blocks, tears, stumbling blocks. They are like they like Satan oppose God and cause others to stumble into sin and hell. That's what they do. They commit lawlessness. They disobey the word of God because that is their nature to sin against the revealed will of God in the word of God. So they are stumbling blocks. They commit lawlessness. These are tears. These are unsaved people whom Christ, when he returns, he will judge. In verse 42, and we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. Furnace of fire? The imagery is drawn from Daniel 3, verses 6, 11, and 15, 20, and Malachi 4, 1. I was talking to a woman the other day in my neighborhood, and she uh, really had the problem with... Um, the Bible in general and in particular with the doctrine of hell. I told her Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody. People have misperceptions about Jesus, you know. They see him as one who is just all kind of lovey-dovey. Everything's going to be okay. No, 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 no. You don't know him. If you haven't re read the Bible, he ain't like that. Yes, he's loving, loving like no one else who ever walked the face of earth, but he is also the judge of all the earth. 
and he talked more about hell not because he wanted to be grim or horrible toward many he's warning men don't go there he knows all about it it's a furnace of fire verse 42 and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth weeping can you imagine the emotional pain generates that weeping for those who are in that place because they've rejected the salvation that Christ graciously offers. Gnashing of teeth. It's the, the frustration of anger expressed physically. What I found fascinating is this, that Jesus uses this formulation, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, at least five times in Matthew. Some people in Lahaina, Maui, escaped the fast-moving wildfires by jumping into the ocean. We're all aware of that. There is no escape possible for those who go to the furnace of fire. Once a person is there, they're there forever. There is no escape. There is no deliverance. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no hope, there's no grace, there's no mercy. It's just the wrath of God. There won't be any parties there. People won't be getting together, let's celebrate. It's a miserable place, an awful place, a place where God will endlessly judge those who refused his grace. That's why we challenge people, encourage people, beg people even, be reconciled to God, come to Christ. We don't want you going there. In fact, as I was thinking about that, it was kind of difficult because I think about the horror of this and it's going to happen because Jesus said it's going to happen and I don't like the idea that there will be human beings in a place like that forever and forever and ever. People say, well, why would God do that? Let me tell you a couple of things what's wrong with us. Number one, we do not recognize the sinfulness of sin. Secondly, and more importantly, we do not recognize the utter holiness of God. We really won't get it until we are perfected ourselves in his presence and we'll see his holiness and we say, yes, God, I see you. That's what's going to happen to the tares. That's what's going to happen to the sons of the evil one. But in verse 43, the contrast. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. If you're a child of God, that is you. You will radiate the perfections of of God. You'll radiate his glory. You'll shine brightly for all eternity. You'll shine as the sun, reflecting the glory of God. In the kingdom of your heavenly Father, the one who saved you, the one whom you call Father, Abba, Father, the one you pray to, that Father, you'll be in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Where there's real joy, where there's bliss, where there's peace, where there's happiness, unending, without any problems, even a foretaste or a forecast of problems, everything will be 
perfect there. Now Jesus lays it out. I'm coming. I'm going to judge. I am going to separate the sons of the kingdom from the sons of the evil one. I will judge those who belong to the devil. They will go to their place and I'll send them through my angels and those who belong to me, they will be in my kingdom forever. That's where history is headed. That's how it's all going to turn out. It's the word of God. I believe Jesus, do you? Amen. Now Jesus closes it here in verse 43. He says, he who has ears... Let him hear. What does he mean? Let me put it this way. Every person who is unsure of his relationship with God should ask himself or herself if he is wheat or merely looks like wheat and is in reality weed, a weed. If you're a weed or tear, you may come to Christ you can do it now. He majors in turning tares and weeds into wheat, sinners into saints, sons of the evil one into sons of the kingdom. Now is the time. He beckons, he calls. Don't die as a tear. Don't wait till Jesus comes and you're a tear. Become wheat, son of the kingdom while you can. Um, the Savior will save you if you'll turn from your sin and repent of them. If you'll embrace him for who he is, he will do that. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for distilling these truths here in the word of God at the end of history, end of the age. And life will no longer go on as it does now, but it will be transformed by the intervention of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring judgment and deliverance. Some sitting before me under the sound of my voice who are not yours, we pray you bring them to yourself. That's the work you alone can do. We ask you to save them. For those of us who are saved, maybe we would be strengthened by these realities and live our lives with greater gratitude for what you've done for us. And we may reflect your glory more and more as we walk according to your word. These things I ask in the name of Christ. Amen.